a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. My guest on Pine Time today is Gladys Berejiklian, the Premier of New South Wales, and I'm so excited to have you, not least of which because I'm one of the very few people who's ever pronounced your name correctly from the first moment we ever met. How do you know that? That's very forward of you. (laughs) (laughs) Because not many people can pronounce Berejiklian properly. I don't think they did in the early days, but I think they've caught on to it now. Oh, they do now. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. They definitely do now. You make an effort to pronounce everything so carefully. I do, actually. Yes. (laughs) I do. (laughs) You do. And we met in the 1990s. We did. So you joined Young Liberals in about 1993, I think. Uh, I did. That's very good of you. I wasn't probably active until a couple of years after that. And so you became president. I did, yes. Of the New South I Wales did. Young Liberals Indeed, in by 97. Accident. By, yes, six, Why seven, was by it by accident? accident? Because the person who was going to be the vice president the year that I ended up being the vice president dropped out with about an hour before the nominations closed. Right. And my friend at the time who was the presidential candidate said, I really need you. And I said, well, I'm not just going to come in at the last minute just because you need me. And then he said, well, it'll only be for a few months. So I ended up doing the whole term and then ended up being the president. So it was completely accidental. Look at you now. Oh, yes, indeed. It was the accidental <laughs> young liberal president. But so, I, And I knew you back then because I was the member for Sturt. You were, and we all loved you. And you were our, you were, <laughs> we were cheer for you because you were a progressive liberal of which the young liberal movement at that time was very much distinguished by. And you were one of our heroes across the nation and our oh, champion. Gladys, that's fair. Am I allowed to call you Gladys on of Pine Time? Of course you are. It's your Pine Time. <laughs> that's very kind of and you to say. It's all about so. you because it's Pine Time. <laughs> and we still, we still love me. Of course we do. We all Nationally. love you. Of course. But the New South Wales moderates and the South Australian moderates have got a bit of a thing, right? We've, well, I think we've it's always... important to say, I mean, look, there's there's always, um, uh, you know, you always join a political party because you're so passionate about your values. And I think for me, being a progressive liberal has always been something I'm incredibly proud of. And yes, there's always been a synergy between South Australia and New mm. South Wales in that regard, which is, I think, why we've kept in touch over all these years. All these years. Mm. But it also works politically in our two states. Well, I, I think it's really important as a leader, though, to know that you're governing for the community. And I always feel that my views are pretty much bang in the middle, which is what, uh, you know, equality of opportunity, all those things that inspire me to join the Liberal Party, I think are pretty much smack in the middle and represent New South Wales. And we've got the most diverse migrant community mm. uh, in the nation and uh, highest levels of immigration and global city and all that stuff in New South Wales. So I think I'm pretty much reflective of the broader community. But South yeah. Australia has a, probably a bit of a different tradition, but comes to the same conclusion. If you don't have a smaller Liberal leader in South Australia, you will not win the election. But I think the thing is, Christopher, and the same applies in New South Wales, is Labor or Liberal, unless you're a centrist, you don't get elected. It's true. Right? So so you can't. And That's I think, in my book. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Can I admit to not having read it yet? You must read it. Is it about? You're in it. Am I? Oh, oh yes. gosh. Better look, you know, you look up the 
things. Because in my the index, yes, <laughs> that's why you have an index, yes. so that people can quickly have a look. And just read they're... about themselves. It's all about that's us, terrible, not about isn't it? the author. Anyway, know, yes. everyone knows that in politics too. They've mm. got an index. Am I in the index? Because you want to make sure there's nothing too bad written about you. That's it. And then you don't care what else is in there. <laughs> the so long as it's not do. something hideous and you have to, you know, worry about. It's yeah. the truth. Yeah. You know, I always used to. In fact, I'd stop at the bookshop in the airports in Canberra, and I think. I'd look at the book and think, oh, it's not got me in it. They can get stuffed. No. I'm not even going to buy this book. No. I'm not in it. So in my book, I actually go through all of the states and the Liberals' leaders who've been successful and point out that other than Western Australia, which is a quite a conservative state, people like um, Sir Charles Court, most of the successful Liberal leaders have been centrists. But I think that goes for the broader community. I think you're being too specific. I think all state leaders have to be centrist, otherwise you don't get elected. And WA, I think you'd argue even the Labor Party is quite centre-right compared to the rest of the nation. Totally. So I think it's more reflective of the state you represent as opposed mm. to where you sit within a political party. It's an interesting thing. It is indeed. So you became the vice president and then the president mm. almost by accident mm-hmm. quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But you really got the bit between your teeth then, didn't you? I did. I kind of, it's a bit, you know what it's like. It's like, you know, you can be addicted to anything and it's easy to get addicted to wanting to change the world and to politics. And um, and I, I, I'm, I remember when I joined the Young Liberals, I thought to myself, I'll wait till I get my degree and go through university because if university doesn't knock it out of me, nothing will. Right. So I waited. I was a bit older than, than other people who, you know, you hear stories about you were probably 15 when you joined, but I was in my... I early, was 16. Yeah, mm. there you go. I was in my early 20s. So I was a bit of a late a considered starter. choice. A considered choice. And I thought if university doesn't change my views and, uh, well, then I know that I've, because it was a big deal for me to sign on that form. Yes, it's always been part of your makeup is being studious, considered. A little bit. It is. It is. And it, sometimes it stands you in good stead during a pandemic and sometimes it doesn't. So yeah, we'll talk about Because I, th- I think what happens is leadership is where all of your strengths and weaknesses are out there for everybody to see. You can't hide from them. No. Uh, and depends on the issues and the time. For example, many will say that Mr. Howard was Prime Minister at the right time or that such and such was a leader at the right time because their strengths were what the community needed at that time. And I very much am a believer of that. So this is meant in the nicest possible way. Just just say it. But I've always regarded you as being like the salmon swimming upstream. Yes, indeed. Don't you think? Always yes. moving from yes. one part of the river up yes. the river, yeah. Uh, yeah. getting their political yeah. staff, uh, yeah. and then Willoughby, yeah. campaign manager. Then there was the hideous campaign with um, Pat. Uh, Riley, who yeah. almost won yeah. in 03, and I thought he had won, actually. Yeah, well, he I, thought he I won. went back to work on the Monday after. Right. I was a bank executive. At the Commonwealth Bank. I was, and I'd said to my boss, look, it's going to be a close, close race. If I lose, can I come back to work? And he said, sure. So on Thursday, our good friend Joe Hockey, um, who was the federal member, was helping me with accounts, and he said, oh, you're a 1,000 behind, you've got no hope. Right. So I went back to work, and then 13 days later I got a call to say you've won the seat. So I said to my boss, I've actually won it, so I've got to resign from well, work. Well, Joe could yeah. never count. He was, he was very good. He's he a was, very good friend of yours, I know. I know, and mine too. And I remember that Pat Riley declared victory. Indeed, indeed. On the night. But, you know, it was it was a great example for me to say, because I only got elected by 144 votes out of 50,000 votes cast, so 72 or 73 people changed their their minds, that would have been it. It really um, inspired me to take nothing for granted in public life because when you literally get there by the skin of your teeth, you think, gosh, this is an opportunity that I nearly didn't have, so let's make the most of it. Yes, and then the Shadow Ministry, mm-hmm. mental health, mm-hmm. when I created Headspace. 
Yes, and John Brogdon uh, appointed me, and I think I was the first shadow minister you anywhere. Were mental health. So it was a very challenging portfolio. No one had had it before me. So in one way, it was reassuring that I could create what I thought had to be done in that space, and I learned so much. And I'm glad I had that experience because I never thought myself very much in the social policy space. I've always been involved, you know, interested in treasury or, or transport, which is what I ended up doing. But that really exposed me to social issues and the importance of having whole of government approach, community based care, and and even now in the role I have, I do turn to what I learned at that stage and it does stick with me. It's amazing how there's a lot further to go with mental health naturally in Australia. But back then when you became the Shadow Minister for Mental Health and I was the Parliamentary Secretary for Health with responsibility for mental health and created headspace and the mm. $1.9 billion big package on mental health and opened up psychologist services to the MBS, etc. It was very hard to get people in government interested in mental health. I think back then the biggest issue Not now, was though. no, it was stigma. Mm. Like destigmatizing mental health was the biggest challenge. Mm. And now I think touch wood, it's much more mainstream. People totally. associate mental and physical health as one, and they are. Which I mean, is to so have so much better to have good physical. You know, whether you break your arm or have uh, you know a mental condition, it's the it should be treated the same way. And I think, generally speaking, we do the acute services crisis management okay, but it's the community-based care, it's the prevention, the proactive ways in which we can encourage people to to pick up the signs or have good mental health is, I think, where we all need to do better at. But mm. it wasn't back then. No, it was in, just people. In those days, they were very, people were saying to me, why on earth do you want to get into this mental health space? They said, no one wants to talk about mental health. And if people did have someone in their family, you know, it wasn't something you'd talk about, but now it's almost um, common and I, and I, and I because it, it is. I mean, so many people are impacted. I think aren't the stats that at least half of us at some stage will undergo some kind of mental health stress. And I think, Probably. yeah, it's it's important um that de-stigmatisation, I think, has gone a long way. Transport after that and then um, economic portfolios in Treasury and industrial relations, mm -hmm. deputy leader of the party to mm -hmm. Mike Baird, mm -hmm. and then Premier in 2017, That's January. Right. yeah. So you're coming up to your anniversary for four Indeed. years. Indeed. My father rings me every 23rd of the month. Glad another month kicked over. <laughs> He's very cute like that. He'll leave a message on my phone. Glad another month gone. Good girl. Keep going. Thanks, When's Dad. When's the next election due? Oh, gosh. March 2023. Uh, it's four, four year terms. So yeah. that's, um, that, that will, but hopefully you'll get re-elected in 2023, but that's actually quite a body of time for a Premier. In it South is, Wales. and I think I'd, I'd like to argue that the Federal Parliament should consider four-year fixed terms as well. well. Three years is hopeless. Three years is hopeless. And also because you don't it's have hopeless. fixed terms, by the time you speculate about the election, totally. you're actually, ridiculous. you actually govern for 18 months in a three-year term when there's no defined period of the election, whereas with us, we find with all our research and even with the public, mm. they don't turn on to the election until four weeks beforehand. So you do get a good four years at governing. You know, I remember t leaders who used to start talking about the election possibly being called because it would stop leadership speculation. Oh, and it absolutely. And what it also <laughs> it's true. And it's true. it keeps everybody guessing it and everyone does. on their whereas we don't have that luxury. It's a four-year fixed term and guess what? You actually have to govern for that entire four years, yeah. which I love because you can actually plan things. I remember when we first got elected under Barry O'Farrell in 2011, we put in place five and ten year plans, which we've since delivered and delivering on. And you don't have that luxury when it's, you're literally governing for 18 months of a three-year term. Well, it takes you a year in a three-year term to get your feet under the desk. A year you... to govern and then a year to prepare. That's right. Yeah, in the last gone. year, all you're thinking, oh, I better make that decision after the next election or whatever. So that's why second-term governments, I mean, in fact, first-term governments in Australia don't have a great record, right, because they, I mean, Howard almost lost in 98, Hawke almost lost in 84, remarkably. Yeah. 
Uh, although, although Prime Minister Howe did bring through important reform, oh, which yes. I think contributed to that. But, yeah, I think it just depends on... You get better in your second term. Yeah. We'd Ministers like to think are, we're peaking in our third term. Mm. But I'm calling this your first term. Well... So mm. the, you, as a Premier, you see. Well, as an elected Premier, mm. yes. Although I did, I've done nearly two years. Yes, yeah. but I... I I want the New South Wales voters to think of this as the Berejiklian government. Well, they do. I think people don't look at the longevity of the government. They look at the longevity of the leader, I think. Yes, I think that's true. There was a time when there was a sort of it's time effect in politics, yeah, but I just don't I think I think that... it's less apparent. And because we've had, no. unfortunately, some level of instability, I think people want the stability now. Mm, we especially... had a 16-year Labor government mm. in South Australia and the... It's time factor in the election didn't really feature. Mm. It was what are you, what are you going to do, mm. you know, and mm. how are you going to make it better mm. than what's mm. there now? Mm. Whereas when we were younger in politics, there was a sort of sense that if you've been in government for nine years, Just or give the other years, side a go. Yeah, the, the, I think people have a chance of losing. But I think it's better for our democracy that people are much more discerning. They're much more involved, even though we think people aren't. I think they are. I think people are much more engaged than what they used to be. Yeah, they're more sophisticated because they're sure. far less loyal to a political party and more concerned with what matters to them. And I think that's good for our democracy. Mm. Well, it make it makes you work harder. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there aren't those lovely safe seats sitting around all over the place with people that you've never heard of anymore. No. Well, because everybody's got to be on their toes. To. People notice when you're not or around. Or the shooters and fishers will turn up or well, something. Well, people notice when you're not around and um, and I think it's important. Work ethic is really important in what we do. Do you know when I first got elected, I produced a newsletter mm. called Sturt Update mm. <laughs> and I showed one of our long-term members of Parliament in, the, in Canberra, who would, you would know well but I'm going to be nameless. Protect them, yes. Protect them. And he said, uh, what have you done that for? I said, well, because I sent it around to all the electorate and I've got photographs in it and lots of stories about things that I've done. He said, but you'll have to do another one now. <laughs> My goodness. I said, that's the idea. Indeed. I said, we're going to do them three or four times a year. He said, oh, no. He said, that expectation you put on yourself of having to do But that. I think that's a really good example of how <laughs> politics has changed. I remember totally. when I first got elected, we didn't really have email or mobile phones. So mm. I remember I'd be out at an engagement and always stressing back to come back to the office to check my phone messages. <laughs> it's like, who's rung me? How, do, do I, what do I What's need to What's happening out Correct? there? Correct, yeah. It's, so it's a very, different, a very different dynamic, a very different way of working. Our occupation has changed substantially. People's expectations have changed totally. substantially. So I but what we can do for people has changed oh, yeah. because of that too. When people can contact you immediately, they want a solution immediately. And, you, you, know? and you know, you yeah. can do a lot more, a lot faster than you used to That's be able it. to do. Yeah. And look, in COVID... We've mm. been able to use that technology, haven't mm, we? Absolutely. Well, you have as the Premier. Well, I'm incredibly proud of the way in which Service New South Wales is our front of shop, front of house for the government. And um, we've been able to use data to get support out to communities, information, grants, mm. um, but also um, really help us fight against the pandemic. What did you think when you heard about the Wuhan story? I, did you think it was going to do this? I, 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 de I did because... Um, at my at my health department was very proactive in briefing me and the minister. So mm -hmm. so they alerted us. In fact, I remember right back in January or February. It was Australia Day, I think, from right. memory. Right. And I remember when I went to the first meeting of national leaders, I was probably the only one that didn't shake hands because my right. health minister already said don't have physical contact. So we were, I feel, quite proactive and quite um, concerned. 
I remember at the time thinking, um, probably because Sydney's a gateway, right though. Out of hand. Yeah, I think mm. because Sydney is the and it certainly has international. Been out of hand. Yeah, Sydney's the international gateway of Australia, so therefore Melbourneites will disagree. But um, <laughs> we, I think we we were especially kind of attuned to that. Mm. That's right. I remember when it happened. I said to Carolyn, "Goodness, you know, this is going to get really." It was, really and out I of think hand. it was a, li- a little bit before Australia Day. But Australia Day is when we kind of started proactively putting our team together putting our uh, contact traces activated and thinking about how we manage our state emergency operations and all those things. So Australia Day, and, and the challenge for us was we still had smoke everywhere from the bushfires and they oh, were raging. So what we a had, year. And the bushfires had started for us July, August the previous year. So we had that and then we had the bushfires and then just at the end of January, February, we had the um, the floods and the freak storms. So people were out of power for days in parts of the state. And then... Um, and then it kind of COVID really picked up in February and it was quite scary. And um, and uh, no handbook, but seeing, I think, because we were lagged, because we were an island continent and the rest of the world, you know, China and Europe had kind of blown up already. It was like the the concern about, well, how bad is it going to be here in Australia? And, and it was the unknowns that really concerned us. Mm. When what, what do you think is the likely trajectory of getting the health side of the pandemic under control. I think the economic side is going to take a lot longer. Oh, I think it depends on how you manage the quarantine system because mm-hmm. community transmission, you know, depending on which policies states adopt, community transmission can be suppressed. Um, we call it a suppression strategy or, or go close to zero so mm. long as you don't have outbreaks. And if you've pretty much taken care of the virus in the community, well, then the big risk is the quarantine system. And we have 5,000 people in quarantine every day mm. in Sydney. Mm. Uh, and, you know, a s- small human error. Well, we saw what happened in Victoria and also South Australia to a lesser extent. Yeah. So that's a that's a daily battle, battle for us. It was a unique set of circumstances in uh, South Australia with the um, the, mis- the misinformation from the... Although that was a consequence, but the initial mm. challenge was the quarantine was the system. Quarantine yeah, not working. And um, That's true. But you said something so sensible months ago now because time passes so fast when you're at my great age. I'm only two years younger than you, so be careful. Don't go too far. Uh, That's true. You said when you were in response to some questions from some journalists, I'm looking forward to testing the health system in New South Wales. We've invested an enormous amount of money in the health system in New South Wales. That was a brave call. It was. and I believed it, though. Yeah, and if, if there is a breakout, well, we feel like we've got the assets in place to deal with it. Well, that's why we kind of move forward confidently in, in opening up parts of our economy. And I pr- promised myself... I never wanted to shut down schools again, never wanted to have a lockdown again after the first experience. I thought, let's let's find a sustainable way of living with this moving forward. Mm. And that's the path we've taken in New South Wales, just to keep pushing literally the boundaries, seeing how much we can do in a COVID safe way. And what's been amazing is the public's come along with us for the journey, and which I found in every state. I mean, yeah. even though each premier has a different way of managing the pandemic, we've all got our own styles and got our own strategy. And clearly some states have a lower threshold for when they need to lock everything down and don't like to have open borders, which I'm at the other end. But I think, generally speaking, Australians have been really great at at listening and taking the advice and and doing what we've asked them to do. Yeah, well, there's been a real rallying around the flag impact, Mm, hasn't mm, there? mm, Definitely. There's been a sense of, you know, I might not be Labor or Liberal or whoever's in government, but I really want them to succeed. Yeah, it's like we want to stay safe. I want my loved ones to be okay. I want to keep my job. You know, and even as a decision maker for the first time, uh, I felt that, I felt it during the bushfires, but not as much during the pandemic, is all of us, you get a sense of we're all in this together and all of us have the same fears. 
So when you're making the decision, you are thinking about not only your citizens, 8 million of them, but, you know, what does this mean for the vulnerable people in my life? And what does it mean, you know, you just turn to, well, how can I keep everybody safe? And what would I feel comfortable in doing and thinking, well, I would never do anything I didn't expect others to do. So that was a very humanising kind of way to, to make decisions, I think, just to assume that well, we, we are, are all, in this together, mm. all in this together. Mm. Were you looking forward to 2020? Because <laughs> it's been a horror year yes. on many I've, fronts. Can I indeed, I'm always an eternal optimist. So I, and I always, I always believe in one foot, you know, after the other. I think no matter what life throws at you and I've, a lot of things have been <laughs> kind of come my way this year. Mm. I always, I'm always a firm believer in there's always better days ahead and you've just got to push through. And that's always been my way to, way to live and way to work. And that's certainly, um, that's certainly been needed in 22. But I don't think you realise how strong you are until you need to realise how strong you are. Mm. So even with the bushfires and the pandemic and then the personal issues that I've had, it's it's always, it's, it's you, you and I think individuals have felt the same during the lockdown. I never thought I'd be able to do the things that we had to do, but then you, you find that inner strength and that resilience and it keeps you going. I think there was a lot of um, support for you during the ICAC uh, mm. process because I think a lot of people around Australia and obviously in New South Wales thought, well, Gladys actually needs our support this yeah. year as opposed to pushing her under the bus. I certainly felt that, I have to I say. I know, I did too. Actually, I felt it. And I know this sounds not logical, but I actually felt more loved after the event than before the event. I've yeah, just I, had a, I've had a very, I've been, I felt very fortunate. But I also think the bushfires and COVID gave people a chance, because normally they only see 10 seconds of you, but it yeah. gave people a chance to know who I am which is really hard in, in public life because it's easy to be painted into a box or a corner because that's an easy way to define people like us. Mm. Like, you you know, as you know, it's so easy to get defined. But I felt because I'd had to deal with those things which we didn't expect and whether people liked me or didn't like me, they I think they felt and I hope they feel they know me. And I think that's why I was um, given that support, which yeah. um, I've been overwhelmed by. Yes, you weathered the storm. Mm. But Mark Texas said something to me many, many, many years ago when I was first kicking around in politics. He said, most of the politicians that go under because of a scandal, it's the only thing people know about them. Mm. And because, you know, they could be sitting on the back bench for 12 years and yeah. then they do a travel allowance yeah. disaster yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. And then there's, they've got no yeah. credit. So what you've got to do, Christopher, is you've got to get people to know you as much as they can, warts and all, all sides, so that if something goes wrong, they think, oh, we know him. You know, yeah. that's not, that's not yeah. Christopher Palmer. Yeah. You know, might yeah. have made a mistake. Yeah. You know, yeah. we know a bit about him, um, which is what's happened with you, of course, because as you said, with the fires and the floods yeah. and, and so forth and being Premier and being yeah. around politics for a while, there's a whole picture of Gladys Berejiklian. Mm. And people, and that part of it this year mm. has been a small part of that picture. It's not the only part. Yeah, of the picture. yeah. But I feel very grateful for that. Mm. So yeah. you should. Mm. Twenty twenty one, I think, is going to be a much better year. We hope so. Although, Chris, I, I have I have said to people, don't. I've said, let's be hopeful and optimistic, but let's also know that we can handle whatever is thrown at us because um, it really depends on. I, I'm worried about you know, what happens when JobKeeper finishes. We've got a million people or so in New South Wales on JobKeeper and I'm hoping most of them will stay in their jobs. But I think it's just important for us to be hopeful and optimistic but also know that unless as a government we make certain decisions today that, um, you know, we could, ha we could have the consequences of, of uh, that unemployment. But I'm, I'm convinced more than ever that we'll be able to weather that storm. 
I think the economic impacts of the coronavirus are going to be around mm. for a long time. Mm. That's just the reality. It of is it. the reality. But I, I also believe that uh, we'll bounce back. We're resilient, and, and I think major cities will bounce back and look at after every time there's been a significant disruption globally, whether it's through war or through famine. The the subsequent years have been much more positive. And, mm. So, um, so I'm always. Well, that's the human that. condition. It is, and it's a pent up demand, right? So, um, and and our ability to get on with it. I don't think any of us thought that we'd experience something like this in our lifetime. We didn't think we'd see a third world war, but certainly we didn't expect to see a global pandemic. You did other things this year which surprised me, and I was I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was very impressed. I there was that minor sort of blow up with um, the National Party. Yeah. <laughs> And it felt minor to me in Adelaide. It must have been in the news big here. But the fact that you just sort of said, look, this is the, these are the rules and if you're not prepared to abide by them, well, then these are the consequences and you're stuck to it. Well, I think as a leader you have to. I think you, you do, have to because a lot you, of people don't. You have to show I'm, I'm a very um, consensus-driven leader. I like to hear my colleagues. I like to consider their views before I make a decision. And most of the decisions we make are collective on major issues, as they should be through the cabinet process. That's the Westminster system. But if someone threatens the integrity of the government or the integrity of us to do what we're elected to do, well, then as a leader, you have to take action. doesn't matter who or what circumstance. Mm. But most people in politics choose the path of least resistance. So if you're if you allow if well, you allow that, that that doesn't that doesn't augur well no. for the future, and I think you just have to, and you know, which is one of the reasons people lose faith in politicians, Gladys. Well, I also feel that I always say to my colleagues, don't stress about anything unless it's life and death. But a pandemic is about life and death. And one thing that I told myself was, don't worry what a commentator might say about a decision. Don't worry about what dare I say it, a journalist or a colleague might say, do what is the right thing to do. And that's given me a bit of courage in my leadership because when it's life and death, you don't want to stuff it up. Mm. You don't want to give a decision or ask people to do something unless it's absolutely necessary because it's impacting their lives, their livelihood, big calls. So uh, that process of kind of, and the bushfires taught me that as well, it's even if the news you're giving isn't good, even if the information you're giving people don't want to hear, you have to arm people with the information and tell them why you're asking them to do something and that engenders trust. So that was kind of something I learned from the bushfires and listened to the experts, of course, and Commissioner Fitzsimmons was outstanding and really supported. Well, I, he supported me, but I also supported him in being able to lead the state through that process. And now the same is with our medical experts, with Dr Chan and her team. It's The experts have their role, government leadership has their role, but it's really... You know the saying that they say, dance like nobody's watching. I've often said to people, I like to govern now as though no one's watching. Just do what you think's in the best interest of the state and everything else will kind of sort itself out. Being Armenian is a big part of your... Being uh, Australian Armenian. Being Australian Armenian, yes, but your I'm Armenian a, background correct, is yeah. very important. Yeah, it is very important. I mean, I'm so proud to, to be born in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia. I mean, my parents... Embedded in, in my sisters and I, they're both migrants and they actually met in, met in Sydney, but um, they said, don't you girls forget how lucky you are born in this country. Don't forget how lucky you are to be Australian, but don't forget where you came from. Don't forget your heritage. And, and so I'm bilingual and I actually, my parents spoke Armenian to me at home before I started school. So that's why I didn't speak in English when I started primary school, <laughs> which was interesting. But again, I think that builds resilience, right? When you kind of have to learn English very quickly. Do you know why I could pronounce Berejikli and properly back in the 1990s? Because I told you it was phonetic probably. And also because, you, do you remember a man called Cardinal Agagianian? Agagianian. Um, 
<laughs> I no. not immediately th- clings to mind, jumps to mind. Uh, the surname is a very common surname. Is it? Where was he a cardinal? In the Levant. Oh, I did not know that. Indeed. And in the 1958 conclave. Oh, there you go, with yes. Pope John XXIII. Yes. He was one of the favourites touted to become Pope. Really? Well, how come? Well, look, I'm of Armenian heritage and know. we know everybody famous in it. So well, how could I not know about Cardinal Agajanyan is how you'd pronounce it. Agajanyan. 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 Mm. So I read a book about John Twenty-third, oh. as you do. <laughs> Many years ago when I was young, and there was this cardinal. Oh, I didn't know that. You've and told I me something. Thought, I'll look him up. And I thought, that's interesting. That was an interesting pronunciation of his name. So I knew that a lot of the Armenians have um, Ian at the end of I their... Ian means belonging to. Right, hmm. belonging so to. So you might belong to a profession or and a town. That's the or, yeah, and Berejik, where my surname comes from, is actually a port well, a port city in, in old Western Armenia where my right. family's from, Berejik. Right. Beradjik is how you pronounce it. Yeah. Beradjik. Oh, that's cool. There you go. But I also, and the Hockadunian is another one, of course. Yes. Yep. People don't realise that Joe Hockadu- Hockey has this Hockadu- Armenian He does indeed. His heritage. grandfather was Armenian. Mm. Yeah, Hockadunian. Mm. Mm. I used to call him that when I was having a bit of fun with him. Mm. There you go. I've got to look up that cardinal now. That's exactly. Mm. So that's why I've always been able to say your there you name go. That's semi-correctly mm. and thought it was important because it's important to get people's names right. I definitely right, think you know? so, yes. It does. It makes a big difference. Mm. Indeed. There was also family tragedy in your Armenian heritage. Definitely. So my grandparents escaped, well, survivors of genocide and... um and uh, ended up in different parts of the Middle East, and um, and then second wave of migration brought my parents' families here to, to Sydney. So, yeah, my mother recounts that I think they lost forty three members of their extended family, including you know very close relatives. And my father has less um, oral history to rely on, but we've been able to follow his family tree, and we know that. Interestingly, there was a New York-based lawyer who was doing a class action to prove the genocide, and one way to prove it, he said, was to get insurance poli- people who had insurance policies in the day to demonstrate that that was taken away, f- all their goods were taken away from them. He traced down our family because my father's family apparently had an insurance policy back in 1915 because they, wow. owned, they owned a big carpet business, right. exported Naturally. rugs and carpets, exactly. <laughs> there you go. But they had a number of employees apparently as well and had insurance policies and anyway, Long story short, that's kind of that led us to um, find finding a relative in the US who'd done a, a extensive family history of my father's side of the family. So we were able to trace back one of his relatives to 1752. Right. So until that point, we were only we couldn't go past my grandparents because we had no documents, no family history, nothing. It was only Golly. it was only what my grandparents remembered orally. Well, that must have been a wonderful it was very uh, exciting. thing yeah. to find out mm. and to, to study. Yeah, so when I, I used to feel a bit jealous when people used to say, well, my great-grandfather did this and I, right. we, we didn't, didn't know anything know. beyond grandparents really and even then it was oral history about great-grandparents. And you but haven't that let it. that go, which is terrific. Mm. You've, you know, embraced the uh, your Armenian heritage. Oh, I think, and all of us do. And you went to Yerevan in 2015 yeah, for been, the centenary. I did, I did, um, for the centenary of the genocide. But I think no matter what our history, I mean, Proudly, our continent is the longest continuing culture in our First Nations people, our Indigenous Australians. But aside from that, we're all migrants. And I think mm. all of us are proud of our heritage, whether it's Irish, Scottish, British. Totally. And I think that's what makes us who we are. And that's the melting pot that's wonderful and significant to our, our, our nation, our national identity. Do you think the Armenian genocide is still a as, as, a, as a controversial an issue as it was 10 years ago? When, well, when, you're, when you know it's real, it's more painful than controversial. You just mm. think, why won't people accept it? Mm. Why won't people accept it happened? 
And that's why when I think about our First Nations and I think about other communities, I think um, recognition is is to do with dignity and respect and acknowledging things that happened. And, and I really relate to that. Are you going to get a chance, do you think, to, rec- to relax over summer in any way? I hope so. <laughs> I, think so. I hope so. But I think, I think my... my um, I think one of the, the additional learnings of 2020 is expect the unexpected. But I always like to spend, in general, most of summer at home or around home. So I'm looking forward to that, reconnecting with my friends and my family who you don't get to see during the year, as you'd know, because you're so busy. They're very tolerant people, family members, Aren't usually. Aren't they? They're, they're, <laughs> they're tolerant because they're proud of you and they care for you and they take a back foot, but it's not fair on them. So I always like to spend, my parents are elderly and my sisters I'm very close to and I don't spend enough time with them, so I'm looking forward to doing Is that. Is there a family beach that you go to? Well, I there's a bit of a tradition that I host um, in, in our culture Orthodox, we have Christmas on the 6th of January as well as the 25th. So we do two right. Christmases. Nice. Two but sets our, of presents? Uh, no, just one <laughs> set of presents. But um, New Year's Eve is the traditional evening when all of the extended family gets together and I tend to host that at my place. So, oh, good. Yeah. So I do all that. And you'll get to read The Insider. Uh, yes, of course. Which will be nice. I'll check the index first and then I'll read it. <laughs> no, no, I might even sign it for you. If <laughs> that would be lovely. Have you got a copy here? <laughs> I haven't sadly, I thought you'd give me something for doing this. Race out. <laughs> no, you get a warm inner glow. Oh, gosh, okay. It's a warm inner glow. I get something for doing it, though. Mm. Well, I get to catch up with you because I never get to catch up with you. Isn't it interesting? You might know each other for a long time, but because of our roles and jobs in different states, you actually don't even get to talk or meet or, or even have a bite to eat together. No, but that's the future for um, Gladys Berejiklian when she oh, stops okay. being the premier. Is that, so can I turn it on you and say what's been the most what's been the most interesting thing you've encountered post politics? Uh, well, the most the I, I don't miss politics at all. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I, as you know, I enjoyed it. I liked the leaving of it. The only thing I miss, which you'll be surprised about, is the team. Hmm. Like everyone thinks that we all, you know, politicians are all at each other's throats, right? But I do miss that sort of sense of the team that you used there to be in. There is an enormous sense of that. It is, isn't it? Especially like, when things are tough. You, bo- you bond together. Do. Yeah. And it's like a football team. You don't like everybody in the team. You like some more than others. But, you know, pass the ball to the person in the best position to kick the goal. And, but there's that sense of camaraderie. And when very someone's unique. in trouble, yeah. you know, you circle the wagons around the colleagues to try and, you know, keep yeah. them to be, as long as you can. But uh, I, that's not... I'm not in that team anymore. I mean, I'm in business now and I've got a firm of six people that I run and then there's boards and various things like that. But it's just that sense of turning up every day and there's a group of people who are all going to be kicking Mm. in the same direction is really Mm. the only thing I miss and it surprises me. That's interesting. Mm. Do you think if you were part of a large organisation, you'd still feel that or it's a different... No. No, I think that you're right though because there's nothing quite as bonding as making big decisions on behalf of citizens and kind of... It is a bond. It is a bond, yeah. I mean, sure, there are hideous people in there, Mm. (laughs) clearly, and there's great people in there. Yeah. And as you say, we don't catch up nearly enough socially because we haven't got time. Well, I I have now, but we don't have time for for social when you're a politician Mm. or a cabinet minister Mm. or a Mm. premier. Mm. That all comes later. Mm. So what I have noticed is now I am quite resentful when I have to travel because I think um, I quite like being at home with the family and friends. Lovely. And dinners mm. with, you know, the Vanstones the Van on Saturday night, for example. Nice. Just 
kicking back and relaxing and not have to worry. Mm. And the other thing I don't do anymore. Is do what I do, which is always check the phone. I don't pick I've up I've only the, done it twice since I've started the podcast. So you've been podcast. very good. Yeah. But I don't pick up the phone in the morning at 6 o'clock and think, I wonder what terrible thing. 6 o'clock is late. Has happened overnight. 6 a.m. is late though, Christopher. <laughs> no, but it's kind of a madness, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's a bit frenetic. Well, the, the, the media cycle is now literally 24-7. It's crazy. And uh, people do contact you at all hours. They and, do. And because of my job, I kind of have to be contactable if something hideous happens and I have to deal with it. So. I don't know how media advisors do their job. Well, yeah. For long periods of time. Well, that's why you've got to take good care of them. That's right, you do. Because mm. they, I mean, they're always on, mm. worried about, you know, getting some call from somebody in the middle of the night saying mm. there's terrible scandals mm. before mm. your boss and, mm. you know, how are you going to recover from it? But I think um, when you retire from your current role, you'll do that kind of thing too. You'll mm. be able to relax and go on overseas trips and yes, things like that. Yes, although you don't tend to, I don't tend to think about any of that really. No, no you wouldn't. But Can you I, can't because you're fo- so focused on what you're doing. Well, Premier, thank you so much for your well, Mr. time. Mr Pine, that was very formal of you. <laughs> thank you so you much, You used to Gladys. call me Gladys. Yes, Thank indeed. you so much, Gladys. Thank it's you, Mr so Pine. It's so good of you to be on our show. Pleasure, Mr Pine time. Is that what your show's called? Pine time. Pine time. Fine time. Of course. Of course. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Bit. It's that's the PR. I know it's great. <laughs> you don't even see PR. You just look straight through it. No, I'm not very. I told you I'm not no, good at I mean. it. You didn't believe me. <laughs> that's what I mean. And I, and I was the only. And I noticed because a few time. a few of my staff and colleagues noticed. I was the only premier that didn't have a slogan behind me during the pandemic. Right. Like every other state had this, and they said, "Oh, should we do one?" I said, "Oh no, don't bother. We'll just well, do well. We'll just been... use our state flag and the Australian flag." Your time has been very good to us. Um, I know how busy you are and you've had a very difficult year and you've managed we it well. we all have, Mr. And we all have. And uh, I am looking forward to 2021. And uh, we're now in 2021 almost and it's going to be a great year. So good Hope luck so. to you. Thank you, Mr. Pine. thank you. Thank you. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.